Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Good morning and welcome to Dirt Radio, Friends of the Earth's show coming to you over 855am and online at 3cr.org.au. Megan Williams with you today and I'm coming to you remotely as things change day by day. I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present from across these great lands including the Wurundjeri elders of the Kulin Nations from where 3CR is broadcasting and to the elders on the lands where you're listening to this show. Sovereignty has never been ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'd also like to shout out to everyone who is going back into lockdown, particularly those people in the public housing towers currently under hard lockdowns. We need a community-based and support-based, a health-based response to this COVID crisis. Increasing the police state only puts more people's safety at risk. I would like to recommend the show that my comrade M. Gay did back in March about how police powers do often get increased during states of emergency. So go to 3cr.org.au slash dirtradio and scroll back for that very interesting and relevant discussion. Today on the show, I am bringing you an interview with Peter Thornton, who is a citrus grower from Swan Hill, a community sustainability leader, and a fierce opponent to floodplain infrastructure that is being built in the Nyavanifra forest. There's nine projects that are being pushed ahead by the Victorian government, and it's a complex story about how we best take care of our red gum forests, what their needs are in terms of water, and how we can sustain a diverse ecosystem. That's coming up after this community service announcement. You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe, and be kind to each other. And you're on Dirt Radio with Megan. Today I'm interviewing Peter Thornton, who's a citrus grower near Swan Hill and also a long-term advocate for the river and for the Nyavanifera Forest. Uh, welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks, Megan, for having me. Oh, it's so great to have you. So to start us off, for our listeners that don't know Nyavanifera, can you tell us where it is and why it's such a, such a special place for you? Sure. So Nyavanifera Forest sits north of Swan Hill, probably about 26 k's north of Swan Hill. Two beautiful little pockets of mainly red gum forest and woodland and a little bit of black box 
uh, floodplain of the mighty Murray River. A very special spot because I, for me, and so many other people of course, but for me because I was lucky enough to grow up, my parents owned a roadhouse at Naya from when I was about six years old. And um, yeah, of course it was an amazing place to grow up. We had the local swimming pool across our back fence and the forest and river just in walking distance um, yeah, from where we lived. So it was an amazing place to grow up and it was very much part of our backyard. And um feel very lucky because of that. Yeah, and so actually I'm interested given that, you know, you have grown up there and you still have a really strong connection to that part of the river. You know, how have you seen it change over the years? Yeah, okay. Well, um, I mean, sad, sadly to say that um, it, it has changed a lot over the years, mainly mainly in terms of the watering regimes or the flooding regimes because from when I when we moved there, which was in 1978, um, we pretty well had regular flooding most years, if not all years, um, of the forest through to around 1990. My parents bought a house in town and um, following that, it became, things changed, I guess, with the um, natural flooding regimes. Water trading was sort of becoming um, more common at that time and then moving into the millennium drought, flooding has not um, been reinstated, I suppose, in the natural way that it had throughout my childhood. And um, whilst there's been flood or waters pumped into the forest since then, um, we've we've not seen the natural flooding as we had before. Um, there's also been probably another change is that even though the forests have been um, actually awarded a higher status in terms of their conservation value, they were um, originally state forests, and as many listeners would know, state forests were um, set aside, you know, for their um, natural values, but also um, predominantly for resources to be taken and used from them. And the red gum forests were logged in the past. And um, so whilst they were state forests, they actually were actively managed and probably had a lot more funding um, to set aside for that management. And so what we've seen too is that whilst their conservation status has, has increased and, um, you know, they've, they're now part of under the National Parks um, Act there's still there is a probably a lack of funding to manage these areas and that's probably what we've seen if you add that together with the um, changed water regimes there's a lot of weeds throughout the forest the thick the thickness of the red gums in some areas is um, it's increasing so where the suckers that come up and grow with the receding floodwaters they are then usually sort of killed off by later floods or they're not being killed off as they were and so the forest is thickening up in places and probably just changing a little bit. So yeah, there's been a few changes but the really big one is the, the flooding regimes because that's the really important ecological process for red gum and other floodplain ecosystems. Mm. And... I mean, you bring up a couple of interesting points. Like, I know 
as I was learning about floodplain forests, it kind of seems counterintuitive that more red gums means less well managed. Um, do you want to just explain that that point about the saplings, you know, being killed off by flood a little bit more? Sure, sure. So um, it is. It's really it's really interesting, and even the whole you know floodplain ecology around this sort of region is really interesting because. Um, in the town of Swan Hill and south or south and east from where Nyra and Panifera sit in the landscape, um, along the rivers there were actually no red gums at all in the, in the township of Swan Hill. So it was actually a sort of a place in the landscape that was flooded so often that no trees almost existed. Um, but then the further north you, you, you went the landscape, the Mallee landscape and the sand hills sort of come and encroach on the on the river and um, forests forests occur in, in these different little pockets. And so in those forests, whilst red gum whilst the red gum species is dependent on the flooding for its regeneration, the the other side of it is that um, it does regenerate really well and then as, as the flood comes in the following year or after a couple of years, uh, it actually does kill off some of the smaller saplings. So not all of them survive. I guess it's almost like a natural process of thinning out. And one of the um, common things that you hear um, from older folk is that the, the forest is a lot thicker than it was. Or the, and some of the earlier, earlier records from settlers and stuff um, talk about red gum, the red gum forests and, and a lot of the other forests and um, or landscapes across Victoria you know, were more woodland kind of environments and in some instances, certainly in the Norinvanifera Forest, um, you can see where where the flood re regimes are lessened or, or taper off, the, the forests can thicken up because the, those floodwaters aren't killing off the, the younger saplings. Does that, I hope that explains it a little bit. Yeah, it is just interesting to me because it's kind of that inundation um, of the floodplain that kills off the, the younger saplings and if that doesn't happen often enough then these saplings can grow and then you have some you know extremely thirsty trees growing in higher density than that's you know, right. what, what otherwise would have so it, it's just such that's a right. point I think. and it's not necessarily you know altogether bad I mean it certainly would have happened naturally at times when um, you know in dry times pre-colonisation um, there would have been droughts and where flooding may not have occurred and those small saplings that grew would have had just a couple of, an extra year or two to, to um, establish themselves and in which case then they can tolerate the flooding. Um, so, yeah, but just it just has implications for the type of habitat, I suppose, that it, that it provides and, and um, potentially, you know... Um, build-up of debris and leaf litter and that kind of thing, which in turn then affects potentially, if there is no flooding, potentially could affect um, or encourage sort of high litter, high, high leaf litter and carbon building up. And then when flooding does occur, you know, there's a potential for blackwater events to happen. So it's all, it's all, um, it's all interconnected. It's all part of the ecosystem and, and 
you know, take away the take the take away the water, and you you really have taken away the the integral component of the whole ecosystem. Mm, it is the lifeblood, as they say. Absolutely. And so there are changes happening in both the Naya and the Vinifera ends of the forests. There are projects that are being planned in these in these parks. And so, you know, the Murray-Darling policy is confusing at the best of times. Can you give us a bit of background to, like, what these projects are and why they're being built in the forest? Sure. Um, yes, it, it is very confusing, Megan. It's, um, and it, it's, it's a shame that it is so confusing because it's very difficult to um, ensure that people understand what, what is going on because uh, in the rivers, in the forests, and um, it's a bit of a concern. But nonetheless, the whole idea of the basin plan was to re-establish a balance with um, how much water was being extracted from the river system. There was a recognition from you know the most conservative of governments um, and across states and the federal government that the river system was over allocated and we needed to essentially give the system back more water so that it remained healthy. Uh, the, the process with these projects that's going on was one that came out of... The, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan set out to um, decide on a sustainable diversion limit, so on a sustainable amount that was able to be taken out of the river system. These projects have come, up, have come out of an adjustment to that sustainable diversion limit. So within the legislation, politicians um, negotiated that if we were to do some engineering works on the floodplain and essentially create um, engineered floods, could I call them, we might be able to achieve the same ecological or environmental outcomes but with less water. And then we would be able to um, get less water, take less water off irrigation to, to back for the rivers in this process. Essentially what they're going to do is by creating levee banks and um, plugging up some of these riverine forests, they'll be able to pump water into the forests instead of allowing the river to rise naturally and flood over the banks as it once did throughout my childhood. So essentially we're kind of, um, we're engineering floods in some locations um, to apparently get the same environmental outcomes with less water. It's a real concern. Uh, I, I think its, it's uh, basis is, is a political one. It's, been, it's come out of a political no negotiation that doesn't have sound ecological basis and I think it's a real concern and in the end it's these projects are being used to justify less water recovered for the rivers and science was to determine that amount. I don't think science is being used properly to determine these projects and that's what we're really concerned about. Mm. And like, can you go into some of the specific concerns like you know, like it kind of sounds good. Oh, you know, we can 
get the same environmental outcomes with less water, you know, like that, you know, to some people might sound good. But what, what are some of the specific concerns that we have, um, particularly in Naya Vinifera, but also more generally with the process? Sure. Okay, so, I mean, specifically within Naya and Vinifera, and, and each of the sites, as you can imagine across, I think there were nine nine sites in Victoria where new new pro projects are being undertaken. I mean, and these projects are extremely expensive. Uh, the Producti Productivity Commission has uh, did, has completed its five-year review of the Basin Plan and it had great concerns with these projects in terms of how much they cost. They cost a lot of money to implement. Um, but so in each specific site there are concerns in terms of the actual footprint of um, the engineering works, so the creating of the levee banks. In, in, in both Naya and Vinifera there's creation of new levee banks or in one case it's a, a roadway that's being lifted to essentially create a levee bank. Uh, and then there are large um, pads, I suppose you could call them, for pumps to be located on. They are changing the um, cultural landscape in terms of filling in natural gaps, I suppose, in the levee. In the, in the, there's, a, there's essentially a natural levee that occurs along the banks of the river and then there are also natural or created um, by Aboriginal people living there over thousands of years to let water into the floodplain. And these areas will essentially be plugged up by these projects. Um, so changing the cultural landscape, which is really important for m all of the First Nations people in our community and of course also other community members who value the intrinsic nature of these landscapes for our cultural heritage. And um, yeah, so there's sort of those actual on-site issues and problems that, that are created by just um, building these projects. Then there are the actual ecological issues in terms of most of the research, and uh, you don't have to be an ecologist to understand that the idea of um, sort of creating these little individual um, dams, if you'd like, they're more akin to a little dam than they, than they are to a connected floodplain ecosystem. By plugging them up, pumping the water in. Yeah, you don't have to be an ecologist to understand that there might not be the same ecological benefits as there would be when a natural rises and falls in the, in the water level, spills into connected floodplain ecosystems all along the river. Um, so there are certain cues uh, that different species understand, whether it be by the weather, the climate and the water levels that might trigger breeding in different species and things that just won't happen with these engineered kind of floods. Uh, one ecologist has sort of um, likened it to turning floodplain ecology into a red gum irrigation bay. So you can kind of see that it, yes, it's going to keep the red gums alive and it's going to benefit certain species, but it's not going to have the full breadth um, of ecological value, nowhere near it to what um, natural flooding would. And the other thing is, and then probably one of the biggest concerns we have is that not just these sites of Naya and Vinifera, but what are the sites that are all along the river that aren't included in these nine projects? 
when is water going to flow into those sites? That is the big question that we haven't been, that hasn't been answered for us. And so, um, you know, if you look at the big grand plan of the basin plan, was to connect floodplains to the river. Uh, this is really going against that idea uh, and treating each, all of these little individual sites as sort of little pumping station sites. And um, yeah, great concern there for us. Mm. It's really, you know, at, if you if you um, give them the biggest benefit of the doubt, you know, I can say these projects would be good for the immediate site. You know, then we've selected nine sites that will get water now and the rest of the floodplain will be neglected except during times of very heavy rains. So... Um, yeah, yeah, it's like changing that natural hydrology right. and also trying to re-engineer nature. Is, yeah, it is. Yeah, such a colonial concept that that we can engineer a better outcomes for the environment than than nature did over its evolution. I couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And you know, if you go back to the um, the initial discussions and the initial um, issues that the basin plan and the setup of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority or commission initially and then became the authority was that this huge river basin needed to be managed as one rather than as, you know, separate states, let alone separate catchments and individual river reaches. Now, this kind of, these kind of projects under this, SDL adjustment, um, you know, it's going back to that problematic way of managing these little individual sites as though they're separate. It's not in line with the, what the basin plan was trying to achieve, and from a from a policy sense, is regressive, not progressive, which is what the basin plan was very much was. I mean, it was supposed to be, and and it really was quite a, a feat of um, politics to think that. You know, John Howard, of all people, would have brought in something that was really quite, um, really quite progressive, and apparently nowhere exists nowhere else in the in the world. The idea that we should set a sustainable limit to what can be diverted from the rivers, and that would be dictated by the best science. The problem is, of course, actually making sure that that does happen, and that's not as easy as it seems. And we are fast running out of time. So what's coming up that people can come along to to get more info and get involved? Well, um, it's exciting to see that Friends of the Earth, together with some of um, uh, the wonderful people working on these, um, on river restoration projects and um, the members of the Lifeblood Alliance We've got an online event coming up, which you're involved with, obviously, Megan. We should give that a wrap, shouldn't we? Yes, it is an online discussion called Floodplain Restoration or River Experiment. It's coming up on Monday, July 20 at 6.30pm. And, yeah, we'll be speaking with Jamie Piddick, who's from the Australian National University and a member of the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists and also Doug Nichols, who is a Wadi Wadi traditional owner and cultural educator. 
I was just going to really yeah encourage people to come along as well because Jamie has done a wealth of um, work on this issue and of course the Wentworth Group of Concern, Concerned Scientists have been involved since the very beginning you know of the Basin Plan and just have provided such an important um, objective and scientific approach and information for us to yeah, just ensure that we are holding the government to account on this. It's such a huge amount of money being spent and we really need to make sure that um, we get the outcomes that Australia deserves on this. So, yeah, really, really encourage people to join in on that discussion. Uh, Doug Nichols has done a wealth of work um, currently living down in um, on the Coorong in South Australia at the mouth of the Murray River, such an important place as well. So. Uh, get on board and there'll be obviously things that um, people can do at the end of that discussion that might also encourage uh, further action. Great. Well, thank you so much, Peter Thornton, for joining us on Dirt Radio. <laughs> thanks for having me, Megan, and thanks for your um, interest and involvement. No problem. We'll be back right after this. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. You're back on Dirt Radio with Megan. And if you're just tuning in today, I have been talking with Peter Thornton about the Nivenifera Forest, which is located about 30 kilometres north and west of Swan Hill on the Murray River. Uh, if you missed the show or would like to listen back, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash dirtradio. And, yeah, just a bit more info about that online event. It will be on Monday the 20th of July at 6.30 and you can go to the River Country Facebook page or the Friends of the Earth Melbourne Facebook page for more details. We have a few other online events coming up tomorrow. Forests and how we can influence the market to protect forests. That is tomorrow night at 730 and also the future of public transport in Victoria, an online forum that is next week on Wednesday, July 15th at 6pm. So check out our Facebook page. You can also join collective meetings online, and that is all listed on the Facebook page as well. So that's just about all we've got time for. Thanks for tuning in. Taking us out today is Walla is Life by Alara. Walla is life. Walla falls from sky. 
brain beginning of life, like our kinship ties. In Mother Earth's eyes, river banks flow wide, fingerlings swim wild, making Mother Moon smile. Hasn't rained in a while. Walla is blood. Walla gives flood. Walla is life. Gotta get law right. Limitless undercurrents. Pushing, pulling, pumping. Gliding, sliding, mulling. Trickles from the nipples of sacred springs. It's an animal thing. After the rain, the river flows. After the rain, the river flows. After the rain. The river flows after the rain. The river flows, and the kookaburra sings. And the kookaburra sings. In the gubba side, 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 in the gubba side. In the gubba side, in the gubba side, in the gubba side. In the gubber side, in the gubber side. <laughs> Seasons, summer breeze. Leaves southeasterlies. Frost on toes will freeze. Plants to make you sneeze. Downpours, thunderstorms. Temps above the norm. Bees will cease to swarm.